Rouge. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So welcome to the to the Sunday um, call for uh, the Sangha UK. Um, somebody's microphone is really noisy right now. It's probably mine. I'm gonna take a mute. Okay. Here you go. All right. So um, today we're going to start uh, at the very beginning. Uh, and that the place that I'd like to start with that is with Sutta number 22 in the simile of the snake, where uh, in this Sutta, the Buddha is accused of teaching something. Now, what he is accused of teaching is, is that upon the breakup of the body, that the existing being is annihilated. Upon the breakup of the body, the existing being is annihilated. If we translate that correctly, we can see that that's actually more or less the atheist position. In opposition to the Christian belief that upon the breakup of the body, the existing being is not annihilated, that it continues on. Now, this is an interesting point because the ones who would be most likely to accuse the Buddha of being an annihilationist are the ones who would be eternalist. And that they misunderstand what he's teaching. And his answer to that was that I only teach one thing, both formally and today, I only teach one thing. And that one thing is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. In other words, the Buddha is making sure that he is understood to not be teaching anything about existing beings, survival or not. That that's not the issue. And yet that seems to be the major issue in the major, uh, be between religions and also the major issue between religions and non-religions like atheism. All right, but the Buddha teaches something completely different than that. And what he teaches is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Now, what we mean by Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda is that there are conditions, there are things. Dukkha, in fact, uh, is badly translated as suffering. If you went around saying, oh, I'm going to teach you how to not suffer, you're going to get very little response because most people are going to say, I don't suffer. And so suffering is not a good translation. A better translation would be dissatisfaction because everyone goes around being dissatisfied. I mean, every one of you here probably been dissatisfied with three or four or five or a dozen things already today. You looked at the clock and you were dissatisfied with what time it was. <laughs> you look at the emails and you're dissatisfied with some that came in and you're dissatisfied with some that didn't come in. Things that you were looking for. Okay, so one of the big mistakes then is made about Dukkha is the mistake that um, everything is Dukkha or that life itself is dukkha, or that there, that there is inherent 
dukkha that actually exist as a constituent component in things. An example of that is the world. The world is a terrible place, okay? But the problem with these is, is that we're not giving things clear definitions. A really clear example is, is that it's not life itself that is dukkha because everyone here clings to life. Everyone here is still breathing. No one here has decided, well, I've had enough dukkha and I'm going to stop. And the only way to stop dukkha is by being dead. And that's not actually what the Buddha is teaching anyway. So it's not life itself that's dukkha, but dukkha does have causes uh, and, and conditions. And um, there is a lot of ideas in the West that God is the cause of both the, the satisfying or the satisfactory, the good things, and also the dukkha, the bad things. And they will use, um, in fact, it's actually uh, written in law. Uh, the insurance companies will say, oh, you cannot get any money for your house because we've got a clause in here that your house burned down through an act of God. God did it. And so we don't have to pay your insurance premium. I mean, this is in there. Have you ever seen some of these? They put, put acts of God in there so that they can get away with not having to pay. Uh, and a lot of people in court will just let them away with that. How could a court possibly let a um, uh, an insurance company not pay a hundred thousand or a million dollars simply because they've got a line in there saying that it's an act of God? So we can understand that, in fact, a tsunami is not an act of God, that getting washed up is an act of stupidity. That if you uh, are aware of tsunamis, you're going to head for the hills, just like all of the animals do. There's actually a long video about the, uh, uh, the tsunami that hit 2004 here in Thailand of all of the animals that were on the island, especially the elephants, um, broke their chains and went up into the hills. There was one guy already on an elephant uh, up in the hills trying to get back down to Phuket, and this, this animal wouldn't go. He kept trying to turn around, and, the, and the, the driver wouldn't let him do that, and so the animal was really, really slow until, guess what, all the other animals in the troop came up to where he was and then the tsunami hit okay so how are the uh uh animals going to know is because they pay attention and humans they're more interested in having fun on the beach and not being aware of the fact that this beach is trembling and that we need to get out of here it's dangerous okay so this is the point that we're making here is, is that dukkha is caused almost exclusively by stupidity not knowing that's the whole teaching of the buddha when he says that he's going to teach dukkha dukkha naroda we can look immediately to say that uh the this teaching breaks into the four noble truths this is the actual teachings and nothing else of the buddha that there is a cause for this suffering and the cause for the suffering is greed ill will and delusion 
And so when I mentioned that the people were on the beach more interested in having fun than paying attention to what the ground was doing, that means that they were into the greed of having fun on the beach without paying attention to what was going on. So this is basically the teaching of the Buddha is that we need to wake up and see what's going on and then get the hell out of Dodge. Get off that beach It's dangerous. OK, so this is basically how we need to learn to practice Anapanasati is with this. Now, the cause of Dukkha, the second noble truth, immediately then goes into the third noble truth that when you remove the ignorance, the stupidity, the greed and the ill will. Then you will not be in Dukkha, you will be in a third noble truth state of being satisfied, being in a state of Sukha. And that there is actually a method for doing this. Now, most people in the Western Buddhism, they hear about the Eightfold Noble Path and they hear that word path and they think that they've got to go someplace. Okay, it's a long distance, thousand miles, they say. Okay, many, many years of practice. But that's not the teaching of the Buddha. The teaching of the Buddha is not dukkha, 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 look at the dukkha, pay attention to the dukkha, get this dukkha and see how it's related to that dukkha over there. Dig a little bit deeper into the dukkha and when you're completely covered with dukkha, then you'll see dukkha. But they don't get into dukkha naroda at all. Not in the Goenka method, not in the Vajrayana, not in the Zen, and not in the uh, uh, Mahasi method, because they don't have some of the ingredients that they need. Okay, so there is a method, but when we under misunderstand the method to be a path, then we see, oh, well, we have to wait a long time. We have to arrive at a destination in order to be free from the dukkha. And we're going to have dukkha all along the path until we finally arrive at some place. Now, actually, this kind of belief system fits directly in with all the other religions, especially Christianity. They have a setup so that you got to keep putting money in their bank, but you can't get any money out of their bank until you're dead and the bank is closed and burned down, and then you can have your money back. But the teaching of the Buddha is no, if you practice the correct method, then we have a solution to the issue. So uh, one of the examples that I use is imagine that this whole thing is like a door and the door is locked. And all we have to do is to put the key in and turn the crank and turn the handle and put the weight behind it and push that door open. And that's all there is to it. And yet Western Buddhism teaches, yeah, that door is there, but it's 10,000 miles from here. And you're going to have to huff and puff for a long time before you can even find the door. And then you have to worry about, well, what's the key? Which leads to an old joke that I know. And that is, is that the young um, seeker was looking all over the place and he finally found a guru way on the top of a mountain that they said had the key. And so he climbs up to the top of the mountain and he sits down with the guru 
And he says, oh, dear guru, what is the key to the universe? And the old guru says, I don't know about the key to the universe. But I do know that the universe has been left unlocked. So that's the whole traveling is we think that there's a key that we have to find and we got to go search for the key to where in fact this door has been left unlocked. There's nothing much to it if we practice correctly. So let's look now at this Eightfold Noble Method that is called the Eightfold Noble Path. And in, the, and in fact, when we look at the word Eightfold Path, we have to understand that there is more than one path. There's an eightfold noble path that is the super mundane, it's the correct way to practice. And then there's an ordinary path of ordinary Buddhism, of ordinary Western Buddhism that <clears throat> is not complete and has some features to it that actually prevent people from getting anywhere. All right, so in fact, the Eightfold Ordinary Path is defined as Sila Samati Panya. Have you ever heard of that? Sila Samati Panya, okay. We do not practice the Eightfold Noble Path that way because that's not the noble way. That's the ordinary way of doing it. And it's got some downfalls. One of the downfalls is, is that we have this idea that, oh, I've got to go a thousand miles before I find the door. And part of that thousand mile journey is Thiva, which means behavior, to get your behavior correct. And there are some orders of Buddhism that will um, actually say that all the monk's behavior is the only really important thing. And if he can practice correct behavior for five or 10 years, then he will pick up the Dhamma uh, automatically or on the side. And that actually happens. That's actually a, a method of doing that. The question is, why should you wait five, 10 or 20 years of practicing uh, correct behavior when the mind is still messed up. Eventually, if we keep looking at our behavior and looking at our behavior and changing our behavior over and over and over again, that will begin to slowly change the mind. But a better way to do it is work directly with changing the mind. Okay, so if we are going to say, oh, but we have to have some sila, yes, you do. And the sila comes from the fact that all you need to do is get yourself into seclusion. If you're not around people, you can't kill them. If you're not around people, you can't rob them. If you can't, if you're not around people, you can't lie to them. If, if you uh, are not around people, you can't go get drunk with them. I mean, that's the precepts are really very easy to understand in the context of all you have to do is to sit down and close your eyes and get comfortable. And you've got that um, seclusion part down, which now we have the sila. And so the next thing that we have to work on is purification of the mind. And that's where most of the methods get confused. And so this is where we're going to be working mostly today is to talk about that. So getting to the Eightfold Noble Method, we have to look at that in the sense of right view, 
right noble view. And with that right noble sati. Which means to remember sati actually anapanasati is one of the most important words within the context of the Buddha and the word sati means to remember. To remember to be here now, remember basically to wake up to wake up and look at what's really going on rather than lost in thought or lost in our ideas or our concepts to really wake up and look at what's going on. And we have to remember to do that, to wake up and to look. This is one's right to noble view. Now, many people get the idea because of a bad translation, we mean a view is like a viewpoint or a world view or a way of looking at things. But this is not what we mean by right to noble view, because right noble view is not a noun, it's a verb to look, viewing, seeing what's really going on right here, right now, versus um, a worldview is about conceptualizations of things, which is just more mental magic, more lost in thought. Okay, so we come out of our beliefs all together, whatever we believe, we come out of those beliefs and start looking at what's going on directly, immediately, right here in front of us. What's happening with the body, what's happening with our feelings, what's happening with our uh, mind and the states that the mind is in and also the uh, objects of the mind which in Nepali, by the way, is Kaya Nupasana, Vedana Nupasana, Chitta Nupasana, and Dhamma Nupasana, which is the Satipatthana. Now, uh, Mahasi and others, they really love the Satipatthana Sutta, but by doing so, they uh, misunderstand the actual issue that Anapanasati is, in fact, practice for the fulfillment of the four foundations of mindfulness. But the relationship doesn't start or stop there, that the real issue is the relationship between the Eightfold Noble Method and the Anapanasati practice put together correctly will bring about the Satipatthana. So the Satipatthana is much more of a result of correct practice rather than the method of correct practice. And so uh, a lot of what we have to learn within the context of the teaching of the Buddha is to know what is a cause and what is an effect, because we often get those things backwards. We get them confused. We think that if I practice this, then that will happen where in fact the real issue is we need to practice that so that this will happen. And an example of that is metta. Metta is the outcome of correct practice, not a practice itself. Here's an example of that is, is that in metta practice, they will say, oh, well, you should make the phrase of may all beings be happy. May all beings be free. Have you ever, uh, uh, Veda, have you ever heard of that? May all beings be happy. May all beings be free. Okay, guess what? That is actually kind of a hope. And it is an irrational hope because just because you say so doesn't mean that the whole, all of these people in the world are going to be happy. 
And not only that, <laughs> but the guy who was sitting there saying, may all beings be happy, he's not happy either. He's wanting something that even he doesn't have. A much more correct um, method practice would be, wow, wouldn't it be great if you guys felt as good as I do? <laughs> now, that's the more correct because I can actually spread that kind of joy and get some smiles out of people give some meta around but going in that dry oh poor us oh may all beings be happy because actually the reality is we all suck which means that we're stuck in dukkha so we have to find a way of getting out of it this is the correct practice and so the first thing that we do is we wake up to look and then we actually do look this is actually step nine of Anapanasati is to look at what the mind is doing. Look at the states of mind, look at the conditions of the mind, look at what's going on, look at the thoughts that we're having. And then the third item on the Eightfold Noble Method is right effort. This one is the one that seems to be the most missing. Taking the right effort to do what? To make a change that the real teaching of the Buddha is all about making a change right here in the here now, rather than doing some meditation that's going to build something up and then later you'll feel happy. We've got some puppies here that are quite noisy in the moment. We'll have to wait for a second. Hang, hang on a second. Okay, guys. Okay, that's enough. Okay. There we go. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, the this eightfold noble method of waking up taking a look at what we're doing and making a change over and over and over again. This is the practice is to wake up, look at what we're doing and making a change. We can say it like this. Any thought that you could possibly have could be improved. Right. If you've got thoughts of anger and hatred at someone, you could improve that thought. If you've got thoughts of this, that, and the other thing, we can improve those thoughts by not thinking about this, that, and the other thing and thinking of something that's real. So coming out of conceptualizations, coming out of the ways that we think and coming into the reality of this present moment is what the teachings of the Buddha are really all about. To wake up, to look at what you're doing, and to make a change. This is the Eightfold Noble Method. There are all three, right view, right effort, and right sati. These are the uh, the parts that we start with, okay? Now, when we say take the right effort to change what's in the mind, the Buddha talks about the distinction between wholesome and unwholesome thoughts. These are also referred to as hindrances. No lot you've heard about hindrances, the Panchanarava. Veda's heard them. How about you, Emma? 
Have you heard about the Eightfold? Okay, the hindrances. What do you hear about the hindrances? In the Mahasi method, they talk about the hindrances, but they don't make the point of get rid of them right now. Those things are hindrances to your uh, practice right this very second. Throw them out right now. That's what we're actually missing in the practice is this issue of throwing out the hindrances immediately, immediately. As soon as the hindrances are recognized, we throw them out. Now, in the Anapanasati Sutta, this is actually referred to as step 10, and the verb that's used there is gladdening the mind, brightening the mind, changing the condition of the mind that's weighted down with whatever concepts that we have and throwing that out and looking at what's really going on in this present moment because you've got a choice. One way of talking about this is, is that we have actually been spending our whole lives talking ourselves into feeling bad, talking ourselves into dukkha, talking ourselves into being dissatisfied. Now it's time to start talking ourselves into being satisfied, talking ourselves into feeling good, talking ourselves into being free from dukkha. Now, there, there is a word in the Pali that's exactly opposite of dukkha, and that is the word sukha. The word sukha is actually in the in Thai language. It's been borrowed out of the Pali, and duke and suk are actually Thai words that are opposites. Is that not true, Marcus? Marcus lives in Thailand. That's so. true. Uh, suk can also mean ripe, like a ripe fruit. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it means ripeness or uh, uh, at that point of delicious. But in fact, there is a phrase that was used way back in the 90s. It was a, uh, a beer commercial. Quam suk dikum dum dai, quastor. Okay, what does that mean? Quam suk means happiness that you can drink. That's a beer commercial. Sorry about that, but that's what the word means, suka. Well, guess what? Sukha is actually on the Anapanasati list. It's uh, step number five. Now, when we talk about these various steps, step one, step nine, and step ten, please don't get the idea that we're marching in a marching band, up two, three, four, like that, going through the process. That I think that that's, in fact, the major problem with the Goenka method is they get stuck on the wrong item. They're stuck on step three. They do step one and step three is basically all that on, uh, the Goenka method is. And they're not paying much attention to the rest of the actual teachings of the Buddha. OK, but if we put it in the context of the Eightfold Noble Path, we can rid, we can actually see how Anapanasati can be practiced correctly. Is because we have to throw those thoughts out of the mind that are dukkha and replace those in the mind with sukha by brightening the mind, making a change. Instead of saying, oh, that hurts, we can say, oh, I can handle that. Change of attitude, oh, question. basically. Question, yes, I guess. OK, so. Um, I think, first of all, I think it's number six that is uh, sukha on the Anapanasati right. sukha. You're yeah. right. Number number five is pity. But right. um, you, you make the analogy of pity as the attitude of like a champion or a winner. 
I just had a itch on my nose. And as I went to itch it, I, I, I just stopped and thought, hold on a second, I don't have to itch my nose to feel good. And then, you know, with that attitude, immediately felt the pity and then the sukha uh, follow through. But can I hear your analogy of um, sukha for a second? Like, cause I remember you t mentioning a tick on the floor. And to be honest, I, even though I think maybe I, I did get some benefit out of the analogy, I still don't fully understand it, or at least not right now. Uh, well, uh, the tick on the floor uh, analogy has to do with when the tick is just sitting there, you can't see it. It has to move that the eyes pick up movement. And so um, that's the point about the tick is, is that we have to start paying attention to that which is moving and tell the difference that in fact, what's moving is different than what's standing still. You could say that what's standing still is analogous to um, sunyata or something that doesn't exist. That tick does not exist on the floor until it moves. And so that's a kind of a bit of a later teaching. Let's go back to the uh, to the to the basics here. Um, in the sense that uh, we're actually practicing three steps of the Eightfold Noble Path, not all of them. So I should back up just a bit to put that in context. And that is, is that when the Buddha um, in Sutta number 117 in the Great Forty, the Buddha says, listen, O monks, and I will teach you right noble unification of mind with its supports and features. That's a very, very powerful, important statement to remember that the Buddha teaches right unification of mind with its supports and features. Sila ultimately is going to be a feature of the right organization of mind, not a cause of it. It's a feature, it's a result that we teach little kids to behave themselves. We give little kids rules. We give little kids precepts to follow because they're not wise enough to see for themselves what is dukkha and what is not dukkha. So we give them a free list of it. But that doesn't mean that the child has the mind state just because he knows uh, or has heard at least about what the precepts or what the rules are, doesn't mean that he can follow them. And so we have to change the mind in order to follow the rules anyway. So let's look at the real, the real issue is the mind itself. So when the mind is out of kilter, when it is disorganized, when it is in, uh, let us say, um, at, at odds with itself, that sometimes you want this and sometimes you want that. Or you say, oh, you want to do that, and then you say, no, I don't want to do it. Or you say, you should do that, I can't do it. So this is the conflict within the mind. This is where Western Buddhism generally makes a fairly big mistake when they misunderstand the word samati, because the word samati has nothing to do with concentration. And it has everything to do with right 
unification or organization. And so when we're practicing uh, samadhi, what that means is that we're gathering the skills together, gathering uh, the features together and bringing them into a whole integrated place. And so now we have three items on the Eightfold Noble Path. We have Siva, we have uh, the Samadhi of the mind, and we have Panya. And with the Eightfold Noble Path, we start with Panya, not with Siva. We start with Panya and wind up with Siva, as opposed to the normal practice of ordinary Buddhism, we start with Siva and wind up with Panya. We start immediately with Panya. This is why we call it the super mundane path, because the sila is ordinary. I mean, uh, think about it like this, that a government is ordinary. Guess what? Name me a government that does not lay down rules. Rules is all about what governments are about, whether it's the government of the household or whatever like this. And so uh, we can see that Siva is um, an ordinary way of starting. And then we purify the mind and then we have a, uh, the view of uh, purification of uh, view. That in fact, in one of the suttas, number 24, it starts with purification of Siva, purification of the mind, and then purification of view. What we're going to start with is immediately the purification of the view, the, the wisdom. By seeing this thought, is this thought that we're having in this present moment, is this a wholesome, healthy thought or not? And if it is not, then we're going to change it immediately. We're, we're going to change the unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. So one of the things that happen in a lot of meditation retreats is that they have the students sit for a long time. And one of the things that will happen when the students are sitting for a long time is they're waiting for the bell to ring. Oh, I want this to be over. Well, if you want it to be over, why don't you just get up and walk out? Why do we sit there and do what we're told to do, follow some sort of stupid rule when we're not getting any benefit out of what we're doing? We're just waiting for the bell to ring <laughs> and feeling pretty bad sometimes. Have you ever done that, Emil? Okay. And to think you could have sat there and enjoyed yourself instead, but you chose to feel miserable because you didn't like sitting there. The body wasn't comfortable. The mind was not in a comfortable state, and we want the bell to ring so that we can get out of it. The question is, why can't we ring that bell inside our own mind and wake up right then? Ding, 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 ding. Look at how you're thinking. <laughs> and so this is where a lot of these practices are, are missing this point about taking the effort to change what's in the mind immediately. This is what we mean by the purification of the mind, is to change what the mind is doing right here, right now, to change the unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts, to change the, um, the hindrances into non-hindrances. So whatever the mind is doing in this present moment, we need to look at that. So if you're sitting here thinking about there, Recognize that you're not thinking about here. 
you're thinking about there. When you're sitting here now thinking about back then, then in that way, you're not in the present moment, you're in the past. So thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, thoughts of someplace else, these are all unwholesome thoughts that can be considered hindrances. And if you have them over and over again, you can call it worry, restlessness, doubt, wanting things that you don't have, um, and just go down the list of the hindrances. One of the things about these hindrances is, is that it's kind of like a group and like a pizza pie and that we talk about the five hindrances in the sense of well, just how are we going to slice up this pie we slice it up in order for the students to understand it but the most important quality is to see that these things fit right back together again in other words if you are wanting something that you don't have then you'll become restless for it and if you can't have it then you'll begin to have doubt with doubt and restlessness and worry and all of that, then the mind's going to get really tired and now you're going to have sloth and torpor. So you can see how all of this stuff mixes together. And if we can catch it at any place, then we can recognize it. We can make a change to it. And so we're going to begin to change the mind, gladdening the mind, brightening the mind up, making it fit for actual work to investigate. So if we do this over and over and over again, see the mind in hindrances, wake it up and put it into a good state over and over again, we begin then to start to change our attitude. In the beginning, right view, right effort and right sati run and circle around each other um as skills to be developed and one skill will help the other skill to develop if you can remember very quickly if you remember often then it doesn't take so much effort and so uh seeing clearly then allows us to not take so much effort but if we're slow and we can't see very well then the effort is going to be great so working with these three things together allow us to start getting some success we begin to get this we begin to see that oh i can change the mind well this means now that we're adding the actual fourth item on the eightfold noble path sama sankapa now in many of the translations of sama sankapa they talk about it as either right thought or right intention Right thought is not a very good translation, but right intention is closer to it. But I would give you a new word, right attitude, to begin to change our attitude from the attitude of a victim into the attitude of a winner. When we're having uh, a mind is full of hindrances, that's the attitude of a loser. And we have language like, oh, meditation is hard. Well, this is difficult. Oh, I can't get this. And we have losers' words. When we start practicing correctly, we start changing our language into, I can do this. I can handle this. This is something that can be done. 
and we begin to change our attitude about it. And so we're adding this fourth item on the list. And now these four things run and circle around each other. That in fact, if we do have the winner's attitude, then it takes much less effort. But if we have the loser's attitude, then when we get to knock down, we're more than likely just going to stay down. Because if I get up, I'll just get knocked down again. And the whole uh, quality of this practice is, is that whenever we do fall down, to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and boogie on down the road. Yeah, we're going to fall down again. So what? I can get up again. And so we begin to have the attitude of a winner, the attitude of a, of a lion. This is why are the, one of the things about the Buddha is he's known to be a lion. What does that mean? He means he's got a really, really high quality winner's attitude. That he knows he can do this. He's figured it out. And so this is actually a skill now that we're going to start developing the skill of right attitude. The skill to remember that I can do it. Right, but we can only develop that attitude by being able to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and boogie on down the road. Time after time after time after time, and we begin to build up this success. It's almost like practicing a sport or practicing music. If we keep doing it, we'll start getting some success, and then we feel good about it. But if we practice and don't get any success, then we'll quit in frustration or really start working very hard. And these are the two things that happen in the Mahasi and the Goenka methods is people either do the retreat one time and quit, like, wow, I'm glad I'm out of that. Or they'll go after retreat after retreat after retreat and just get into it. Ah, I got to have it. I got to have it. I got to have it. But neither one of those is the winner's attitude of, I can do this. So, Damarato, yes. Uh, yes. for a guy like me who know the uh, Goenka and the Mahasi practices, um, I'm, I'm wondering what has to change. Do I still do this practice, but whenever the hindrances show up, I, I freestyle and uh, sort of forget about this strict Mahasi-style technique, and I handle the hindrances until they're handled, and then I go back to some more like fixed, simple, uh, not so dynamic task. Actually, what you could say is, is that they took right noble view and messed with it and called it noting. So the noting that you've been doing in the Mahasi method could be correct practice if what you're noting is what's happening in the present moment. Okay, and so we do the noting in the sense of remembering to note. So you, in the Mahasi method, you've already started to develop the skill of remembering to note and then to see the note or to see it. The problem is, is that, uh, this, well, here's the way it goes. The students will ask the teacher, note what? And the teacher will say, note whatever is there. Right? Isn't that what they're told to do? Okay. And so if a bunch of crap is there, then that's all you've got to note. It's, it's almost like the Mahasi method is your own private uh, accommodations that you're setting up in your own city dump. 
<laughs> and there you are examining your trash until you get so tired and so sick of it and so afraid of it that you go into that state that they, in fact, it's, um, there's a, a, a list of things. It's called the 16 stages of insight. No doubt you've probably heard of those. Okay. The 16 stages of insight is step six starts with fearfulness, misery, disgust, despair, and then a strong longing to get out of it. Followed by, guess what? The next item, number 12 on that list, is the April Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths. Well, we're going to dispense with all the misery, all the despair, all of the fearfulness, and all the longing, and take that right effort, the redoubling of the effort, and start with that. This is where it becomes noble. Okay, so uh, hang, hang on, Marcus. Uh, so in this point of the noting, what we have to do is to start to make that change to come out of what we were noting into something more wholesome. Let's throw the garbage out of the mind. Let's take the right effort to do that. And so we can say, like, you're, you're sitting and thinking, you're sitting in meditation and thinking about an argument that you had with Aunt Susie or a girlfriend or something like that. And you're you're racking it up. Oh, when I get back to her, I'm going to tell her this and I'm going to tell her that. And I'm going to make sure she understands this point. And guess what? We're just daydreaming. We're just conceptualizing and we don't feel very good while we're doing that. A better thing to do would be say, oh, well, I don't have to think about girlfriend right now. She's not here. Why should I be thinking about something that does not exist in this present moment? The girlfriend is not here. She's gone. Why am I trying to make her real and bring her back into present just so that I could beat her up? Now, the worst part of it is, is that after the meditation, which we have now ruined, we get up out of our practice and we go talk to that girlfriend. And guess what? When she hears what we've all been dreaming about in our meditation, call it meditation in quotations here, she's going to answer it in a way that we didn't remember or didn't think about. And so our whole, I mean, she's got us now because we had all planned out this particular thing and she didn't respond to it the way that we wanted her to. The better thing to do is for us to get into meditation and practice correctly, throw her out of the mind, get the mind clean, fit for work, in a beautiful state, full of joy, full of sukha, and then go talk to her. And never mind what she's thinking and never mind what I was thinking when I was in meditation, because that's just a hindrance, not being in the present moment. So go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, the novel eightfold path is good in the beginning, good in the middle and good at the end. The The precursor to all that uh, Mahasi method stuff is kind of stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. Like when he when are you going to stop doing the wrong thing? And start doing the right thing, you know, mm -hmm. like that. That's the impression I got from from my retreats. They're giving me all these instructions. It's like, oh, keep on noting, keep on noting, and but then I they they kept on telling me to note three times, note everything three times, and then I realized, well, it's already gone away by the by the time I've I've said it two times. Now I'm not in the present moment anymore because I'm noting something from the past, you know. Mm-hmm. 
so stay out of that and stay in the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the real practice now that we can bring to um, the whatever practice that we have been doing. So I'm not saying that uh, Goenka and Mahasi are completely wrong. I'm just saying that they're missing a couple of things. It's almost like buying a pair of shoes, but don't have shoelaces. You need some shoelaces in order to make the shoes quite useful. So uh, what are the shoelaces here? That's the right effort. The right effort and the knowledge of how to put the shoelaces on and tie them up so that things fit correctly. Um, and so this is why we need to really work with the Eightfold Noble Path. We need to use that as the basis of foundation rather than some method from some, which got somebody's name on it. Let's go back to the Eightfold Noble Path. And when we understand that correctly, we'll understand how to practice already. To gladden the mind, to brighten the mind, to throw the unwholesome things out of the mind, that's one's right effort. And when we do that over and over and over again, we begin to see, I can do this. That meditation is not hard. It's actually quite easy. All I have to do is take a little bit of effort to forget about it. Just to forget about whatever I was thinking about. Let it go. Drop it. Don't keep it in the mind. Just let it go. Now, Marcus made a really important point. You probably heard this before, that, Maha, that uh, the teaching of the Buddha is good in the beginning. It's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. And yet, look at the way that, that uh, Goenka and Mahasi practice happens. Not so particularly good now, is it? Terrible. No, it's not all of that great. And so that means that there may be some tweaks that we can make to those practices so that we can turn them good. And this is it, taking the right effort to put wholesome thoughts in the mind. This is what makes it good in the beginning. And then good in the middle is when we begin to get the right attitude. I can do this. And to now the middle is really singing. This is when we begin to get adept, when we know that the meditation is working. We know it's working because we're getting benefit out of it and we're enjoying that benefit. We're praising that benefit. We see how great that benefit is and we like it. And that benefit is actually wholesome now. And so this is where we can begin to practice the Eightfold Noble Path. And these four things of right sati, right view, right effort, and right attitude wind up bringing the mind into unification. We become whole again. We're not having these arguments. Now, mostly the arguments that, that happen in the mind is because we'll remember and tell ourselves some rule some right, some rules, some rituals, some supposed to. You're supposed to sit squatted on the floor. You're not supposed to move. We have a whole lot of rules. I mean, just to, uh, an example of that is the IRS. I have heard the IRS has 80,000 pages of rules. And that's just the IRS. How many rules do you have? How many rules did you get from your parents? Wow, I got thousands of them. And 
um, you know, many of uh, them actually we can't perform. We actually uh, carry around, every one of us carry around a set of rules and set of standards that we cannot live up to. And so we consider ourselves failures because we don't even match up to the to our own set of rules. But when we start to recognize these rules for rules, we can throw them out and say, I don't need that rule to be happy. I can be happy, in fact, without that rule, but that rule is not going to make me happy. It's going to make me miserable because I'm not going to follow that rule, whatever the rule is. And I can give you a hundred different examples like quitting smoking. People will make, oh, I should quit smoking, and then they'll really suffer. The, rec the correct way of doing that is to say, I don't need this cigarette right now. Or even if I've got it lit and I'm puffing, I can say, wait a minute, I don't need to puff right now. I can take a deep breath without the puffing. In other words, we're removing the hindrances right here, right now rather than making some sort of rule like thou shalt quit smoking. I'll have to say that I need to leave. Um, so thanks a lot for the uh, session. Okay, well, I hope that you got some value out of what we're talking about. Did, that you, thank you. Yeah, so I hope to see you again. I think you will. Mm. Great. Yeah. Take okay. care. So recognize that we haven't even gotten really started yet, that we're just beginning. And so there's a whole lot more to go with this. So now that we've gotten this part of the practice going, just for the moment, in the moment, we change the mind. Whatever the mind is doing, we can change that. We also begin to add the breath in there in the sense that if we feel tired, normally the tiredness comes because we're not getting good air, getting good breathing. And so uh, we use the mind. To begin to control the breath in the Goenka method and in the uh, uh, Mahasi method, they all talk about the breathing. But the um, way that they talk about it is generally to just watch the breath, just note the breath. You probably heard that, just note the breath, just watch the breath. But that's not what the Buddha teaches. The Buddha teaches, no, you have to mindfully breathe in long and mindfully breathe out long. Thus, one trains oneself. OK, so in fact, we're actually using the mind. To control the mind by using the mind to control the breath. If you can control the breathing, that means that you're controlling the mind while you're controlling the breathing. And this is all about right effort to take the effort that it needs to actually consciously start to breathe well. And so by breathing well, and by uh, remembering to breathe well, we're actually now building up two skills, one in the body and one in the mind, so that we can do a kind of a pincer movement to start working on feelings. If we can get the mind 
uh, fit for work, relaxed and comfortable. And we can get the body relaxed and comfortable and energized. Now we have the, the tools that we need to actually begin to control the way that we feel. Most people think that we're out of control of our feelings, and in fact, the feelings of the boss. It's built right into our language, by the way. In the sense of I am angry, I am frustrated, I am sick and tired. OK, guess what? We can see it differently when we see the um, uh, the frustration. It's not me that's frustrated. It's just frustration. This is where we're beginning to uh, change our purification of view. We change the view from I am not frustrated. There is frustration. So a way of looking at it is like this. If this is the frustration and I am frustrated, then that means that I'm part of the frustration. The waking up is to say, aha, I see that frustration. And so now we're not the frustration. We can say, oh, I see frustration, but I'm not frustrated. Just because there's frustration there doesn't mean that I have to be frustrated. But in fact, uh, this separation, this drawing back, this taking a look at frustration itself is a way of recognizing that I can change this. I can change it. If I can change my thought, from, oh, I'm so frustrated into, aha, I see frustration, then I can say, hey, I don't need that frustration. I can be happy without the frustration. Let the frustration and whatever I was thinking about that gave the frustration, let that go. And let's just be here and comfortable and happy in this present moment. And this is the way that we can practice over and over and over again. And as we do, it begins to build the confidence that I can feel good anytime I want to. No matter what happens, no matter how obstructed the mind actually gets, I can clean it out and come back to this present moment and see things the way that they really are. Now, basically, this is a quote out of Sutta number 48. And what that means is, is that when we can, in fact, change our attitude that I can make the mind free and fit for work anytime I want to. This is a new attitude, the attitude of a winner, the attitude of a noble, the attitude that is super mundane, an attitude that is not held by ordinary people because you know yourselves, ordinary people are victims. They're not in charge of their lives. Here, we're actually taking control of our lives by taking control of the mind, taking control of the body, and taking control of the feelings in this instant. I'm not saying taking control of the body by going to a gym and working out for three years or going on a diet or any of that kind of stuff. That's what losers do. Winners say, I'm all right right now. This is good enough. This is it. This is great. Let me take a deep breath and enjoy this moment no matter how fat or ugly I am. Because fat and ugly is just a concept, just an attitude. And so this is the basic practice. Bringing the, the Satipatthana together through the various practices of Anapanasati, which means to take the effort to change what's in the mind, to take the effort 
to start to start controlling our breathing, taking long, deep, relaxed breaths. And then as we build that skill, we can now take the effort to change the way that we feel. I can feel any way that I want to. Because I can change the way that I think. And if I think unwholesome thoughts, I'll feel unwholesome. If I think wholesome thoughts, then I'll start to feel wholesome. It's just simple as that. Literally, we have been talking ourselves into feeling bad our whole lives. Now we're going to practice talking ourselves into feeling good. So, Kitty, I don't need that light. Kitty, don't need that light. Can we turn that off? Can turn this one on? So, does anybody have any questions or any statements or anything to add with this? Yes, Marcus. I was just thinking about the word wholesome because it, um, you know, pops up in different uh, traditions and and such. It's just a nice word. Uh, being, I don't know, being whole, needing nothing else. That uh, in that moment it is complete, and there's nothing else to get or nothing else to chase after. Whereas mm -hmm. unwholesomeness, uh, me kind of suggests. You're not complete without something else that is outside of this present moment. Mm -hmm. The word wholesome that we use comes from a Pali word, and the Pali word is kusala and akusala. Now, kusala. I was just going to say uh, that. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite monks is called Ajahn Kusala. Who is talking? That was me, Drew. <laughs> Oh, oh, Drew. Hi, Drew. Good to see you. That's <laughs> yes, the word Kusala, uh, also pronounced Kosala, actually is a plant. It's a um, it, it's a plant. It's a grass that is similar to lemongrass. Have you ever seen lemongrass? It's got big, broad leaves on it. It's, it's something also like um, uh, aloe vera, except that the aloe vera is really juicy to where the kusala grass is a really, really tough desert um, tropical grass that when it's laid flat under a, a board or a brick or a rock or something like that and made to dry like that, it gets very stiff and very hard and it can be used as a knife. And it will cut things like cloth and bread and all kinds of stuff. And so the word kusala actually has to do with uh, the word of cutting into. Can we see what's in there? Can we cut into it? The way we, we can look at the word kusala is the way that we use the word diagnose. Have you ever heard the word diagnose or diagnostics? Okay. What that means in electronics is to separate, to isolate, to cut it down, to break it out, uh, to diagnose, which means to cut into the diag so that you can know it, the gnosis. Diagnosis means to cut into it and, and separate the parts out so that you can see what's going on. This is the practice that we're doing here is we're actually diagnosing the thoughts that we have. We're cutting into them. We're checking them out to see is this thought wholesome or not. And so this is what we mean by wholesome. Is it worthwhile having? Is it valuable? Is it useful? 
or is it just junk? Because most of our thoughts are just junk. Not only are they junk, but they're heavy junk because we keep doing it over and over and over again, having the same thoughts because we're trying maybe to work something out. We really want something and we can't have it. So we're looking at 25 different ways of getting what we want rather than just relaxing and saying, right now I can do without that. I don't need it. There's no reason for me to try to figure it out. Let me look at what I'm doing right now. I'm making myself miserable because I want something that I don't have. Which is actually one of the very classic definitions of dukkha, wanting something that we don't have right now. And so by uh, through correct looking, we can begin to now change what we want from the things that we just anything that the heart would desire because we've seen it someplace else or thought about it some other time or we've got a concept about it. Now we can begin to see, oh. If I want it and it's immediately available, then that's OK. If I want it and don't have it now, I'm suffering. Now I'm dissatisfied because I don't have what I wanted. Let me start to modify the things that I want so that I can become more satisfied easily. So if I'm sitting there waiting for the bell to ring in the meditation hall and I'm saying I want that bell to ring, I want that bell to ring. Look at that a little bit closer. What you really want is you want to be able to get up and move. So why don't you just get up and move? Just to get up, walk out of the meditation hall. If you really want the bell to ring or another one that you could do is say, hey, wait a minute. I'm sitting here with nothing to do and no place to go, and I'm sitting in a desire for the bell to ring when I can just sit here and be happy right now. I'm glad I thought about it like that. I can look into that bell and recognize that it's not the bell that's going to make me happy. It's my change of attitude about the bell that's going to make me happy. And so this is the way that we can begin to practice is by recognizing that we can get what we need to have in this very moment so that we can be satisfied. And the way to do that is by stop wanting things that we can't have. And just enjoy what we do have. This is the real teaching of the Buddha is to be satisfied, to recognize what it is that keeps us from being satisfied and change it right here, right now. And then and get the benefits out of it right here, right now. This stuff is good in the beginning. It's not hard work in the beginning. We're not trying to get something and get a reward for it later. We're actually getting the benefit of it. All we have to do is remember to look at what we're doing and to make a change and then enjoy the change. So you can think of it like this is to wake up, look at what we were doing, change it, and then congratulate ourselves for making that change. Always be sure of that congratulations. That's the pity. That's the patting on the back. I got it. I can do this. Remember that that congratulations, that's part of the Eightfold Noble Path. If we don't congratulate ourselves for a job well done, then we're missing out on that unification of mind. The mind will only come whole and only come together when all the various parts of it are sufficient and satisfying and satisfactory. And so we learn to become satisfied with our practice. So 
This is basic introduction to Anapanasati, the basic introduction to the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths. There's really not that much to it. Everything that I have given you so far is all that you need, but all the questions that the students have is about various points in time, various hindrances, and how to get over that particular hindrance or various problems and how to solve that particular problem. And guess what? Every problem can be solved the same way, by forgetting about it, throwing it out. Because almost all of our problems, about 90%, 99% of all the problems you've ever had in your life didn't actually happen. They were just thoughts. Thoughts about how bad things can get. Thoughts about how bad things are. Okay, that's politics, in fact. Look at the politics that, that in whatever country you're in. I mean, politics is in real turmoil right now because nobody's satisfied. And all we'd have to do is just recognize, hey, just because the world is all a mess doesn't mean I've got to be a mess. I can just sit here and be happy. Yeah, Putin, I can't stop Putin from doing what he's doing in the Ukraine, but I can stop myself from hating Putin. And just be here and be happy. So this is the entire practice right here. There's really not that much to it. The question is, can you remember? That's the real key. Can you remember to take a look at what you're doing? Can you remember to make a change? Can you remember to congratulate yourself for it? Because if you can get yourself into that state, then you're satisfied. And if you're satisfied, then you don't want anything. So you're unlikely to go kill somebody to get something that you don't want. It's unlikely for you to go steal something from someone that you don't want. You don't want that thing, so why should I steal it? And so this is the outcome then. Our outcome is, is that the mind is clean, pure, bright, wholesome, and not in a state of desire that's going to take us into unwholesome behavior. And our behavior stays wholesome because the mind is wholesome. So when we train our children, we say, oh, don't do that. When the right thing to do is to train our children and to say, be happy now without it. If you're happy now without it, then I don't have to make some stupid rule about, oh, you can't go there and you can't do that. But you could just be happy now. So one of the students asked me about that in practical application, and I says, okay, when Kitty goes to school, a lot of the students' uh, parents will say, when, you, when, they, when they send the kid off to school in the mornings, they say, do a good job, do what the teacher tells you to do. But a better thing to do would be to say, Kitty, when you go to school today, have fun, enjoy your day, make some friends, be happy. Here's some money. Go buy your friends some uh, uh, something to eat and, and make friends with people. This is the way to teach children how to go to school. But we don't do that. We get all wrapped up in the rules about, oh, you're supposed to perform. You're supposed to do a good job. And we wind up making our children unhappy that way. And then they grow up to be adults that are unhappy, training their next generation of kids to be unhappy. It's part of the culture. 
that we're a very result-oriented culture, and what we're actually doing here is beginning to change our process. The process of this present moment, how I feel right now is much more important than do I ever get that big job done or not. But the job to be done is irrelevant. We're only making ourselves miserable by thinking that the job is important and needs to be done. So I can leave you with listening. Figure out in your life what's important. What is important? I would I suggest that you look at it like this. Your job is not important. People get fired all the time and they survive. Your relationships are not important. There's lots of good fish in the sea. You can go for a month without eating. You can go for days without uh, drinking water. How long can you go without breathing? How long can you go without breathing? Maybe one or two or five minutes if you're really good at it. When we recognize that, this breath, that's what's important. Staying alive right now is important. But if we are alive and are not paying attention to this present moment because we're stuck in the past, then what value is that? So if you really want to be alive, then be alive right here, right now. This is the time to be alive. This breath, that's what's important. So start considering what things are uh, important to you in life, and you'll begin to start making some, some changes to recognize what's really important rather than the things that we were told that's important. Like winning a war is important. No, winning a war is not important. It doesn't matter who wins or loses. The better thing to say would be is, is that can the people, when they're fighting the war, enjoy themselves? Because if they can, they'll probably stop fighting. <laughs> and just enjoy. So does anybody have anything to say about this conversation or any any uh, follow-up? Veda, what do you think? You look like you're getting something out of this. Thank you. Right. Marcus, do you have any parting words? I don't know without going off on a big tangent. It's just uh, um, the, the suttas that you brought up uh, recently, and I actually revisited it. I stumbled upon it uh, recently on, on you know, um, how relationships and things that we love, that's what the uh, dukkha kind of emerges from in a way. We talked about it with last time with uh, King, King who again? I forgot. One of his um, consorts or something approached the Buddha and yeah. Oh, King Pasanadi, yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when when you mention about what's important, that that comes mind to mind for me for sure. Can you link to that sutta? Uh, sure. Yeah. It might take Number me a while though. Eighty-seven. <laughs> okay. Thank you. In the Majjhima Nikaya. Eighty-seven. Uh huh. So, Carl, do you have anything to say? Any parting words? Um, I just wanted to say, like, 
as far as like when it comes to poly work, sometimes it can be confusing, but like from direct experience of just doing things, you start to understand the terms that we're using in, 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 in these Dharma talks. I think that was the first, my gap in like thinking these words were magical or there was some confusion in them. But as I, as I experienced, I, I, I practice more, I start to understand more deeper into them. So whoever is like practicing or watching this, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about the words too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That, that a lot of the stuff about religion has to do with a long sequence of events rather than directly. What we're practicing here is direct. Right here, right now, look at what you're doing and making the change to it. But most of the things have to do with, oh, in order to be happy, we have to feel secure. In order to feel secure, we got to build a house. Oh, the house we have is not big enough. We need a bigger house. I got to go get a job and I got to go do all of this other stuff. And all of that stuff winds up being what we think is important. When the reality is, is that just sitting here and being alive and being safe and secure, that's what's important. The house is not necessarily going to make me feel safe and secure. So feeling safe and secure is much more important than getting a big house because houses, big houses don't make people feel safe and secure at all. We've been lied to. So getting ourselves into a state of safety and security, that's what we need to practice. And we'll talk about that in another time. So anyway, this is, by the way, it is a rainstorm right here, right now. Can you hear it in the microphone? No. That's, that's interesting because it's, it's really boring. <laughs> it's Must cold. be a good mic. <laughs> So I, I thank you all for coming and I hope to see you all again very soon. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you everyone. Marcus, okay. Drew. Thank you. Bye bye guys.